Alcohol use can impact on health in a number of different ways. It's estimated that nearly 6% of deaths worldwide in 2012 were attributable to its consumption. Despite this figure, the number of people with harmful drinking who access treatment is low. A clinical review on thebmj.com looks at the assessment and initial management of alcohol use disorders, and I'm joined now by the authors of the review. First we have Ed. Ed, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dr. Ed Day. I'm a consultant uh, addiction psychiatrist working in Birmingham and also a senior lecturer in addiction psychiatry at King's College in London. Great, thanks Ed. And Alex? Hello, I'm Professor Alex Capello from the University of Birmingham, Professor of Addiction Research and I consult in clinical psychology in the Birmingham Addiction Services. Great, thank you. And finally, Martin. Yeah, hi, I'm Dr. Martin Hull. I'm the lead GP with a special interest in substance misuse in Birmingham. Brilliant. Thanks so much for joining us all. Um, So, Ed, to start with, can you tell us about the scope of the problem and why it's important? Yeah, sure. Uh, Alcohol use disorders are a significant problem in the UK. Uh, The the figures uh, are are quite frightening if if you look at them. The it's estimated now that um, uh, well over 200 acute and chronic disorders are related in some way, either directly or indirectly, to alcohol consumption. And the direct health care costs of, of alcohol use are estimated to, to cost the NHS something like £3.5 billion a year. Um, this is probably just a drop in the ocean when you add in the, the social costs, the cost to the criminal justice system, to, to families, to uh, work and productivity. And again, figures somewhere between 20 and, and 50 billion pounds a year um, is estimated to be the cost to the to the UK. So, alcohol consumption is a significant issue, but it's also a very complicated issue with no easy uh, solution. Uh, I like to conceptualise it as as two problems really. The the, the the issue that most doctors will be familiar with um, is the problem of severe alcohol dependence. People with very heavy consumption of alcohol presenting perhaps in crisis but certainly with a range of medical psychological social problems and that is is clearly an issue but but probably only represents about five percent of of the population um what's also important is that alcohol also represents a public health issue in that there's a spectrum of drinking uh, across adults in the uk and if we consider that if we could just uh, get people to drink slightly less, if we could shift the average consumption down a little bit, that would have enormous public health benefits to the whole population, um, particularly to things like um, reduced risk of cancer, reduced risk of high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease. So we have to take both of those perspectives at the same time, the, 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 the severe end of the spectrum, but also the general, the, 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 the encouraging people to drink slightly less um, across the whole spectrum of drinking. Okay, so it's clear that there could be a number of benefits from, um, you know, overall reducing the amount that we drink. Um, and in the review, you outline, you know, the different categories of levels of drinking that people fall into. And quite a lot of people fall into the category of harmful drinking. And if that's the case, why do so few people access treatment? Um, Martin, can I ask you that? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think... For me, there's two real factors. The first one is for patients themselves, um, not necessarily realising that they would fit into a kind of higher risk or harmful category. Um, 
And then the second one would be um, for healthcare professionals as well, A, identifying that that's true for a, for a large proportion of the population, and then B, um, picking up on the opportunities to help people identify that they fit in those categories, and then also to do something about it, particularly when they're presenting, for example, to primary care with other issues. So GPs, for example, will be seeing people in primary care consultations presenting with something else, but potentially have an opportunity to identify that they sit into one of these higher risk categories and then either have the time and I guess the wherewithal to, to do something about it. So I think they're probably the, the, the two big barriers to identifying it. But those at the, at the top end of the spectrum, I think, are easier. They, they tend to know they've got an issue with alcohol. Um, healthcare professionals know there's an issue with alcohol. It's really that, that significant proportion of the population that sit in the higher risk category that aren't really aware of the risks and then kind of... Um, that the GPs or primary care practitioners aren't necessarily identifying those risks. Okay. And Martin, as a GP, I mean, how would you advise that primary care and hospital doctors go about identifying people at risk? Well, I think that there's, there's certainly a lot of um, evidence of the things that can flag up risks. And, and some of that, I think, is already being addressed. So um, building into to chronic disease reviews, such as hypertension reviews or cardiovascular disease reviews, um, the sort of building into templates that we that we ask about alcohol and that we undertake structured alcohol screening is one thing. Um, so I think that's already been done to a certain degree. Uh, I think there are some other areas where we're possibly less good at, at, at picking up possible risk. And I think one thing that stands out for me are, are younger people that are at risk of alcohol um, and things like attendance to A&E departments or requests for emergency contraception or things like that are opportunities that are potentially missed at the moment that that GPs should have at the top of their agenda is, is asking these patients about alcohol and starting to flag up the issue at, at an early stage if possible. The other, the other area that's, um, that's important for GPs or in primary care to, to think about alcohol are the mood disorders or low-level mental health problems. So anxiety, depression, we know there's a very strong correlation between mood disorders and alcohol use. And there's a real opportunity there for GPs to, to ask people about alcohol and also to get people to start to appreciate the potential links of sometimes self-medicating anxiety or depression with alcohol and the fact that, therefore, that can make their anxiety or depression worse. And this is certainly a big opportunity in primary care to, to raise the issue of alcohol for people who may be drinking at higher risk levels and then start to, um, to help people identify the issue and also to address those issues as well. So that's another key area. Okay. I mean, but they can be quite difficult conversations to have. I mean, whether that's through a lack of time or if it can be awkward because it's not the reason why the patient attended or perhaps just from a healthcare professional's knowledge gap around how to effectively engage people. Um, yeah. What would you advise for listeners who have difficulty with this? I, I think the time issue is a key one. I mean, I think when you're talking about a 10-minute primary care consultation, particularly when somebody's presenting with something else, to, to, to squeeze in an adequate risk assessment and then to address alcohol as a separate issue is, is a big problem. Um, I think that patients are comfortable with GPs asking them about alcohol as part of a, of a lifestyle screen. I think they expect to be asked about you know, all, all lifestyle issues. So I think that's not necessarily um, too much of a barrier. But I think what is the barrier, like you say, is, is both time and also maybe recognising that the potential for doing it. So... It's making sure that, that healthcare professionals have it on their agenda um, and possibly thinking about some overarching ways to ensure that happens, like the chronic disease stuff, 
Um, but then also making sure that, that, that people think about the importance of it and, and start to try and bring the subject up. Yeah, so just kind of building it into your regular practice. Um, yeah, yeah, and then once you once you have identified um, someone with um, perhaps harmful levels of drinking, there's evidence that delivering some advice um, about drinking can be effective. Um, Alex, can you tell us um, what that involves? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's important once you identify um, the problem, you can sometimes seamlessly move into um, having some discussion that uh, moves the problem on and helps people begin to identify risk. And within that, um, what research has shown is that there's two forms of advice that, that could be helpful here. One is uh, very brief advice that could be delivered over five or ten minutes. Um, and this is usually uh, where you can let the person see how they're standing in relation to the general population and then encourage them gently to uh, think about the benefits of uh, cutting down the drinking. Um, but always uh, making sure that allows the person to have responsibility for change. Otherwise, there's a, there's a chance that the person might uh, stop listening to, to that advice and uh, resist uh, those um, uh, important interventions about change. Um, one could move on then to have a, a slightly more extended uh, brief intervention, which could be delivered over, say, 20 minutes or so. And GPs are very skilled at delivering a lot of uh, work in, in shorter periods of consultation. And this usually involves moving on from just the advice to encouraging the person to consider more carefully the uh, advantages and disadvantages of continuing to drink uh, to get them to think about uh, the importance for them to change in their drinking or drug use behavior and the confidence that they have in being able to bring that change. And again, research shows that those individuals who see the change as important and also feel confident that they can bring about change, uh, are the ones who then successfully engage in change. And then you can encourage the person to think about the advantages and disadvantages of continuing uh, to drink at those levels, and possibly if you can get to that stage to get them to think about goals um, and um, identify goals for change in a fairly specific uh, fashion. And, and research has shown that, that this work can be done. We've got guidelines in the paper uh, in a fairly short uh, intervention and can lead to significant reductions of harm, particularly in, in the, the drinkers who are at risk at that point. Thank you. They're really helpful points. And as you say, there is a very helpful framework in the clinical review that kind of takes people through how to how to deliver um, a brief intervention. And you also link to a number of very helpful resources as well. Um, so at what point um, should a specialist get involved, Ed? Um, specialist services uh, a referral to specialist services would probably come from primary care when um, there would be a number of different groups. Firstly, uh, it, people that um, on the initial screening using the audit tool are scoring 20 or more on the tool. That suggests uh, a significant level of alcohol dependence. And that, that, that individual is almost certainly best referred uh, to specialist services, um, particularly if there's a likelihood to require a, a medically assisted alcohol withdrawal. Um, that, uh, but, but, but then also other groups, people that are scoring less, people in the higher risk um, or the increased risk groups. Um, if the 
if uh, the brief intervention has been delivered, um, perhaps a, a more extended brief intervention, and it hasn't um, produced the, the required reductions in drinking, or if the, the patient themselves wishes to get more specialist intervention, that group should probably be referred. And, and then a third group that, that usually benefit from referral are people with significant um, physical or mental health comorbidity, where there's, there's more than one problem involved, um, also probably benefit from a specialist uh, intervention. Um, the specialist interventions, what, the, the first step of a, of a specialist intervention would be a much more detailed assessment of the person's problem, taking into account all these other um, comorbid issues and and a lot of the sort of causative factors uh, involved in, in, in alcohol use disorder. And then the development of a more uh, extensive plan. One part of that plan, as, as I mentioned earlier, may be um, medically assisted alcohol withdrawal. And it's probably important, although GPs very often get involved in, in the delivery of that, it's very important that that's not done in an unplanned way because um, alcohol withdrawal does carry a significant morbidity. Uh, people are at risk of, of, um, of alcohol withdrawal seizures or more se severe consequences, delirium tremens, uh, Wernicke Korsakoff syndrome. And all of those issues um, are much better dealt with in a slightly more planned way. Um, specialist services... Uh, will provide community alcohol nurses who can visit people at home, can assess uh, the degree of social support that's available, um, and can also um, detect the cases where an admission to hospital might be um, the, the, the best form of um, the, be the best action. Um, I think it's probably important that, that GPs don't um, feel pressured into uh, offering um, ad hoc. Um, medication, um, benzodiazepines or, or, or other medication for, for detox um, done in an unplanned way. Um, specialist services will um, uh, provide a range of different um, psychological interventions, which I think uh, Alex is going to talk about, but they'll also look to um, plan longer term aftercare. Um, and that's that's a significant factor in in terms of uh, if if you deliver a medically assisted withdrawal, that's really only the beginning of treatment, and that um, ongoing help to prevent relapse is, is perhaps the key aspect of treatment. I've probably got something to add, actually. Sorry, it's Martin here. For me, I mean, just really reiterating what what Ed was saying. I think really the the two key roles for specialists at that kind of interface. One is, I think, sometimes the extended brief intervention that Alex was talking about. Um, whilst it could be delivered by a GP, and practice often isn't. So GPs will be very comfortable delivering the shorter brief interventions, but those patients who are identified as warranting a more extended brief intervention and having an alcohol practitioner ideally placed in primary care, we know works very well. So being able to refer on to an alcohol counsellor who's based in the surgery, um, who can then deliver a, a short course of extended brief intervention is a model that I think works very well. I think secondly, I really wanted to reinforce what Ed was saying. I think it's a, a really common scenario for GPs to face patients who they know, who present to them typically on a Friday night saying, I've had my last drink, um, I've had a detox before, it's worked. If you just give me some benzos, I'll know I'll be all right. And really just to, to support GPs that the best approach, the vast majority of the time in those cases, is not to undertake one of these ad hoc um, detoxes in an unsupported way with benzos and actually it's the preferred scenario for that patient to continue drinking ideally at a reduced level if they can until they're able to be properly assessed and then supported through a detox and I think this is something which GPs find very difficult because they're presented with a patient in front of them saying I've got no money left 
I'm not having anything more to drink. You need to give me those tablets that I know helped last time. Because we know that the risks of those sort of unsupported detoxes are high and that GPs really have to stick to their guns and say, we need to do this properly and from a medically safe point of view and get you into services as soon as we can. I suppose one of the difficulties, one of the elephants in the room, I guess, is how easy it is to access those specialist services. And I think maybe we'll come back to that in a little bit. And I think that's possibly one of the areas that, that, that GPs find quite frustrating is that then accessing um, those, those sort of specialist-supported specialist detoxes is, is potentially quite difficult. But that's the scenario we should be striving for. Thanks, um, Martin. That's that's really helpful. As a GP, I've definitely been there and somehow it does always seem to be your last patient on a Friday afternoon. Um <laughs> Alex, can you take us through some of the other interventions um, that you talk about in the review that are um, designed to prevent relapse and, you know, keep people um, at safer levels? Sure. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the psychological interventions. I think the first thing to say, however, is that in the current climate, um, there's been a lot of changes and recommissioning of services across the country is really difficult to to know precisely what's going to be available uh, in any in any local area in terms of the actual interventions i think it's, it's worth perhaps thinking of, of three groups of interventions uh, the first is those based on motivational interviewing uh, the idea here is that the motivation of the person with the uh, addiction problem is central to the resolution of the problem And 